Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, October 19th, we're studying Proverbs chapter 30, verses 1 through 33. The penultimate chapter of Proverbs records wisdom, wisdom from Agur, son of Yaka. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's a pleasure. So, Pastor Roth, we're in a new section in the book of Proverbs. We've finished a section of Proverbs written by Solomon, but recorded by the men of Hezekiah. Today we've got words of Agor, son of Yaka, and it says in verse 1, the oracle. So, do we know anything about Agor or his father, Yaka? Um, no, I, I think that uh, it's kind of like the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, right? Only God knows. So, so he's a wise man of, of some, some stature. I mean, that, that's about all we can say. I think we can say that numerous verses in this section reflect parts of the Torah and the prophets and historical writings. So we can definitely assume that this is a man who knows his Old Testament Bible. Okay. Any any features of the chapter as a whole? He gets a whole chapter is what we're going to look at today. Any features of that chapter as a whole that, well, I mean, that do connect to the rest of the book or that stand out as unique from some of the wisdom we've already seen? Most distinctive is his lists, um, his numer- numerical sayings. Um, so he'll say three things are cool, four things are awesome, and so on. So those, I think, are that's what really jumps off the page. And that's not unique to Scripture. We do have some other examples of it in, in Proverbs 6, in Job, in Amos, in 1 Samuel. So it's not unique, to, but this is it's, it's definitely more prevalent in this chapter than anywhere else. Okay, so, so a few features to look at. We've got a lot of text to cover. I think we get—well, how would—we're going to break this up, verses 1 through 10, verses 11 through 33, which is not the halfway point. That's the way we've typically handled a lot of Proverbs. Uh, why are we breaking it there? I think because uh, the first 10 verses deal mostly with um, our relationship with God and His Word and law and gospel. Um, and then the, the next section deals more so with, um, with family life, with government life. Um, with with more of those numerical lists that um, you know provide points of comparison um, between earthly things and um, well they're all earthly things so things from the natural realm compared to things from the political or social realm so I would say that that you know the, the first ten verses deal more with theology the, the next ten deal more with ethics all the right. next section deals more, more with ethics sure and I think as we as we read them that break becomes a pretty natural one to take. So, Proverbs 30, verses 1 through 10. The words of Agur, son of Yaka, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I acknowledged 
nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name, and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and steal, and profane the name of my God. Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you, and you be held guilty. That's Proverbs 30, verses 1 through 10. Uh, Pastor Roth, probably the first thing to, to just comment on maybe briefly is the very last word in the introduction. It says, the oracle. I don't think that's a word that we've seen in the book of Proverbs. If it if we have, it hasn't been many places. Why The, the words of Agur, son of Yaakov, the oracle, what's that mean? It's a prophetic message, and it's a divine revelation. So you can speak of the Old Testament um, oracles of God, I think Paul speaks of in Romans 9, doesn't he? Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. So, so we're talking about prophetic word of God here. So the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. One of the questions that I think comes up several times during this section, and it comes up right away, is who's talking and who is he talking to? So the very first part of this oracle, the man. Who's the man declaring, I am weary, O God? I think this has to be Augur speaking from his perspective as an unenlightened, sinful human being. Why is he unenlightened? I think we could say, I mean, why, I mean, we know why he's sinful, I suppose. Why is he an unenlightened human being? Why do you call him that? My sense is that in this section, um, Augur is saying that a man who tries to understand things divine apart from revelation and by his own reason and strength, is never going to attain to true wisdom, but instead he is going to just wear himself out uh, and be ultimately led to despair. So that's why the, uh, the admission at the beginning is, I, I haven't, by my own reason or strength, been able to know divine wisdom. I'm worn out from my striving. And so I think this sets the stage for uh, the, the, um, the gift of divine wisdom from above. Those those first couple of verses have a bit of the flavor of Ecclesiastes, another section of the wisdom literature, that sense of, of hopelessness, of vanity, I think is the way that it's often translated in the book of Ecclesiastes, where, where Solomon, assuming Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, that, that he has searched and searched, and it's it's all meaningless, it's all vanity. You get a similar sense here with, with Agur that He's not learned wisdom. He's he doesn't have the knowledge of the Holy One. Verse three, that's a country song. I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for wisdom right. in all the wrong places. That's Augur's problem. Sounds to me like that's the case. Yeah, I, and it really reminded me of Romans ten, the beginning of the chapter, where Saint Paul says, "Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for the Israelites hmm. is that they save. For I bear witness, bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge." 
For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So I think Augers realized that uh, he is, he's not gained any knowledge by righteousness of the law. He is going to need the righteousness that comes by faith, which is the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus. And even though we're talking about different authors here in the book of Proverbs, Solomon would point us to the same thing when it comes to the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of instruction, the beginning of wisdom. So Augur has arrived at that same spot, it seems, as well. So, but I also oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I do think that we, you know, need to recognize that all of us have this in us because of our old Adam, and so to the extent that we have not been enlightened by the Word, but rely upon our own resources for divine knowledge, we're going to weary ourselves as well. So, verses one through three, they have that flavor of Romans ten, as you said, or flavor of Ecclesiastes. Verses, it's just first four. It's a longer verse. Has a flavor of the Book of Job. And, and here is, is one of those places where, at least as I read, uh, I wonder who is talking to whom. In the book of Job, you get these questions coming from the mouth of God to Job. Who's asking the questions in verse 4? And, and then take us into what those questions are asking and what the answer is. I think at this point, Augur is, is um, turning his attention to the, um, the, the reader or the hearer. And he's asking, he's asking the question, really on behalf of the Lord. But I, I don't get the impression here that this is, you know, d- direct speech from the Lord in the same way that Job comes down and says, dress for action, or the, the Lord comes down to Job and says, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Who did this? Who did that? Surely you know. Okay, so you do get the same language there. Surely you know. But I, I really think this is Augur speaking representatively on behalf of the Lord. It's not the Lord come down speaking. So, Augur speaking on behalf of the Lord, asking these questions, what's what's the point of all these questions? I think he wants to um, to to crush any pride um, that might be held by you know the self righteous who think that they really you know have achieved some sort of divine knowledge by their own efforts um, and, and deluded themselves into thinking that that's possible. At the same time, we're going to get, um, he's also reproving those who would think that you need to somehow ascend into heaven and strive to, to reach heaven by your own might, strength, or wisdom. Uh, because it's very clear already from Deuteronomy chapter 30 that, uh, uh, Deuteronomy 30, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? No, where's the word? It's with us. And Paul picks that up again in Romans 10. It's very interesting that we have, you know, connections between the, the first chunk there in Romans 10's introduction, and then he immediately goes into, where's the word? Well, the word has come down, and it's near us, it's in our mouth, it's in our heart, and so on. Hmm. So, crushing the pride, but that I don't actually need to ascend to heaven and come down, because the Lord has brought his word down, and, and there, I mean, you know, I, I think, well, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in the garment? You start to answer these questions. The book of Job says, well, the Lord, the New Testament says, the Lord in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and, and I think the, you know, the, sort of the climax of this verse is, what is his name and what is his son's name? Hmm. Boy, 
that is remarkable, isn't it? Um, so this is this is very clearly a reference to the Father, is his name, and then the Son is Jesus, uh, and this is uh, um, something that our our Church Father uh, Augustine um, observes, and and then the Lutheran Church Father Chemnitz, he says this is the clearest passage where he is called the Son of God without respect to his human nature in the Proverbs. Mm-hmm. I think Chemnitz talking about. Very clear passage about the divine nature of the Son. So Augur has searched for wisdom. He is wearied by it because he's been looking for it in all the wrong places. He's not learned it. He asks these questions on behalf of God. The answer, you know, who has ascended to heaven? Who has done this? Well, this is the Lord. This is his Son. And and to know then wisdom must come from God, from his Son, it flows very naturally into verses 5 and 6, where Augur takes us to the Word of God. This is the place where you will find wisdom. Take us into verses 5 and 6. Yeah, I mean, he really immediately answers his own questions, right? Mm. Surely you know, every word of God proves true. Or in the Hebrew, every word of God has been refined, that has been tested to make sure that it's it's pure. And then it says, the Lord is a shield to those who take refuge in him. This is gospel, right? Mm. We don't have to climb to heaven. Jesus is the one who came down from heaven. He, the Son of Man descended from heaven, was lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, and uh, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So it's through faith, through receiving the word of God that we have salvation, not by striving or climbing or working. And then we're protected. The Lord is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And if we try to find protection outside of him, or if we try to add our own protection, verse 6, if we add to his words, well, he ends up rebuking us and, and we prove ourselves liars. Right. Yeah, and, and it's it's not it's not just a, a warning, right? It's a threat. Hmm. The Lord says, he will correct you. You will be shown to be a liar if you add to his words. This recalls Deuteronomy 4, where the Lord's specifically tells the Israelites not to add to the words that he commands them or take away from them, but rather take keep the commandments whole and undefiled. And it really also reminds me of the end of Revelation, where the, uh, the Lord Jesus warns through John, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. That's a dire warning, isn't it? Mm. Reminds me also of when Jesus says that uh, of anyone who's ashamed of him and his words at judgment day, the father will be ashamed of him. What's the move from verse 6 into verses 7 through 9? I mean, so far, the the way he's progressing makes pretty good sense. Verses 7 through 9, well, to just tip my hand a bit, sound like a prayer. Now we've got Agur talking to the Lord. Why? He starts asking about taking, you know, these two things he's going to ask. How does the prayer that he offers in verses 7 through 9 relate to what he's just laid out for us? Well, in verse six, you just you just had the uh, the issue of being found to be a liar, and so our old Adam is constantly subject to the the devil's uh, you know 
prompting. And of course, what do we know about Satan? He is a liar and the father of lies. So um, Augur is, is praying then that he would be able to hold fast to the word and not be become, uh, well, he says, remove far from me falsehood and lying. And while we tend to think most in terms of second table of the law, you know, it's bad to lie to your neighbor, what's more significant uh, in regards to lying and falsehood is the second commandment, which means that, uh, as, as Dr. Luther explains, we should fear and love God so that we don't curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie or deceive by God's name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. So I think what Augur's most of all asking is that he would be able to continue to believe and proclaim the truth of God's word and never be deceived by Satan's lies. Mm. Similar to the way Luther explains the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, that we would not be led into false belief, shame, despair, despair. or other great shame other great and shame vice. And so a, a very similar way of laying out verse 8 there. That I mean, it's always struck me in that explanation that the first thing we're, we're praying against would be false belief. We do tend to default toward sins of the second table, which certainly they're bad. We don't want to fall into those, but we can never lose sight of the first table either, and, and that's where Augur starts here as well. Well, and then also just remember, what's the first thing we pray for in the Lord's Prayer? Mm-hmm. May your name be kept holy, Lord, and that means that his word would be taught in his truth and purity and that we'd lead holy lives according to that word. So I think that's exactly what Augur is praying for here. Mm-hmm. So then the second thing, that because he says two things, and we get a hint of his list already here, as you, you pointed out, we'll get to those more. You get a hint. The second thing he prays for is neither poverty nor riches, right right in the middle. Why is this Augur's prayer? Well, because, as Dr. Luther points out in the large catechism, mammon is the most common idol in this life, and... It, it's for the rich man, um, an idol that he wants more and more and more of it. And for the poor man, he lacks it, and so he wants it. And, it, and in either case, though, the mammon is controlling the person. But if you find this sort of golden mean in which you're neither too rich nor too poor, you have all your daily needs provided for, if you're able to find contentment in what the Lord has given you, as St. Paul says, if we have food and clothing with these things, we'll be content. I think that's probably more or less what Augur has in mind here. Uh, the, you know, everyone in America is, not everyone, but most of us Americans are fairly rich by material standards today. But, you know, in the, in the context of the ancient world, you're mostly thinking about your daily provisions, clothing, food, shelter. You want enough, but if you get too much, then you can be like, well, who needs the Lord, right? Mm. I don't need the Lord anymore. Now, on the other hand, if you're too poor and don't have stuff, you might ask the question, well, what has Yahweh done for me lately? I've got to take care of daily bread for myself. Hmm. Right, and so we we do pray in the fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. And I mean, each each of those words is significant. And to emphasize twice, this day, daily bread. I mean, the example of the manna in the Old Testament comes to mind when it comes to daily bread, that God would give us what we need for this day. And and in either way, we, you fall off on either side of the horse. That's that's the danger. And, and notice how, in both cases, Augur does connect 
that back to the first table of the law. In both cases, you know, the first case, if he's if he's got too much, then he's going to be saying, "Who is the Lord?" If he doesn't have enough, he's going to be stealing, and he's going to be profaning the name of right. God. Yeah, yeah. Actually, both tables, right? Because the seventh petition, I mean, the seventh sure. commandment is don't steal. But why is it? Why is stealing? You know, what's the worst thing about it? It's that we're dishonoring the name of our Father who's in heaven by all of our sins of thought, word, and deed. Verse ten concludes this short section here at the beginning. Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. What is this conclusion telling us? Well, this one interestingly. Sounds a lot like the Eighth Commandment, doesn't it? Mm. That we're not to bear false witness against our neighbor, slander him or hurt his reputation, but defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way. So I, I think this one, this verse might be kind of a bridge between the first section and the second, because it's it's transitioning from our more of our direct relationship with the Lord according to the first table, and now it's focusing on the second table and the way we treat other people. Um, so, you know, the, the servant is in a position of vulnerability. And no doubt if you slander a servant to his master, especially in that historical period, this is going to be really, really bad news for for the, the, the servant. So, um, you know, this is a good reminder that especially the vulnerable and people who are under authority are most likely to be abused. And if we are to add to that abuse or provoke that abuse, um, then we probably bear the greater sin. So the first 10 verses dealing primarily with our relationship to God, the way that we come to know wisdom through his word, how we pray for that wisdom, and then bridging into the section, second section that will deal a lot more with the second table of the law, our relationship to our neighbors. We've got about five minutes here before the break. I'm going to go ahead and read that longer section, and then we'll start talking about it and spend the rest of our conversation on it. Proverbs 30, beginning now at verse 11. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed in their filth. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, a land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. Three things are stately in their tread, four are stately in their stride. 
the lion, which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any, the strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. That's the rest of our text for today. That's Proverbs 30, verses 11 through 33. Lots there, Pastor Roth. Very vivid language, earthy examples, almost the quality of of riddles to a degree. Uh, that that sort of feel to it. Any any comments on the on the section as a whole before we jump in? I would agree with that stylistically. The the riddle aspect. Some of these are ones that I've ever since the first time I read the Proverbs just kind of puzzled over. And I, I I wonder if that's you know intentional to to um, maybe wrap things in riddles and parables in such a way that it forces us to really think through and compare with other parts of Scripture what these things might mean. Hmm. We'll do a little bit of that thinking through here, starting again at verse eleven. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. That's probably about all we got time for before the break. This is the section, there are those, there are those, there are those. Yeah. Cursing fathers and mothers. We've heard this in Proverbs before, but we've got maybe a different spin on it here. Well, we do, and and, and it's actually going to recur in verse 17 when we get there. So I, I think, you know, this, this filial piety um, is a really important aspect of the second table of the law. You know, the fourth commandment is uh, a bridge between the first table and the second table because God is the one who's given us our parents and other authorities. And so the way that we show respect, one of the ways we practically show respect for him in this life is by respecting those people that God has put in authority over us. But I really like the way that Augur has not only forbidden um, cursing of the father, but also emphasizes that the sin of omission of failing to bless mothers is another aspect of the fourth commandment. And Dr. Luther just beautifully captures this in his explanation in the small catechism that we are to honor our parents, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. So it's not just a negative, you know, duty, but also a positive responsibility. Yeah, that's one of the wonderful features of the explanations to the Ten Commandments in the small catechism. You see it here from Augur in the book of Proverbs. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO. We need to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, October 19th. We're looking at Proverbs 30, verses 1 through 33. We've got Pastor Carl Roth with us. He serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, prior to the break, we left off 
with verse 11, the series of there are those. So we've talked about the fourth commandment. Verse 12 then, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Sounds not too different from some words of Jesus where he talks about whitewashed tombs, uh, but maybe a bit different imagery here. What's going on in verse 12? Yeah, and each of these four um, verses can be translated at the beginning, a certain kind of person does this or that. So this could also be translated, a certain kind of person considers himself to be pure, but is not washed of his own feces. So, um, as is quite typical of the Hebrew Bible, um, it is earthy language. I mean, think about Isaiah talking about our good works being as, well, menstrual rags. So, um, I, I, I really appreciate the, the earthiness of this section, um, and, and we'll make, maybe have a chance to take note of that uh, as we get to verses 32 and 33 later, because a lot of times to, uh, to illustrate you know, how severe uh, a moral failing is, to compare it to something disgusting in the creation is, is a useful way of doing it, right? Mm. Right. I mean, we heard Solomon previously that the dog returns to its vomit. That's not a pleasant picture by any means. And, and here Augur does very similarly with the picture of feces. So let's unpack what he's getting at. So people who consider themselves to be pure. Um, so on one level, I think looking around us, there's a, there's a considerable group of people who are pretty self-righteous about certain things. And they, they claim to be on the right side of history and on issues like the climate, on race, on politics, and so on. But when you actually examine their lives, well, they have not been clean from their own moral impurities, and their lives are quite disordered, perhaps most notably Hollywood celebrities. So I think that that's one application of this. Sure. Thank, At the thank, same time. Uh, so thank yeah, God go that ahead. I'm not like them, right? Exactly. That's, that's the real problem, uh, is that while we're right to identify the folly and, and, and hypocrisy of such people, we must not fall into self-righteousness ourselves. So I, I was reminded of what Jesus says in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. So we really need to be clean on the outside and on the inside. So piety and good behavior is certainly not enough to make us right before God. So we as Christians must be continuously striving to cleanse ourselves both of outward moral failings, but above all of the sin of our heart, which can only be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The, the, the way that it's phrased, you know, there are those or a certain kind of person can lend itself to that sort of self-righteousness that I would not... I always have to be making sure that I'm putting myself in that group. I am that certain kind of person. I am among the those who fall into this. Absolutely. So verses 13 and 14, there are those, or a certain kind of person, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. Pretty strong imagery here again. It is, and it's just really amazing how similar it sounds to Jesus and Paul. You know, you think about um, another one of the reproofs of the Pharisees was that they devour widows' mm. inheritances and houses, right? And then, I mean, I can just picture the Pharisee 
standing there saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other sinners. How lofty is his, are his eyes? You know, remember, he's looking up, right? And, and, and the, the tax collector can't even bear to look up, but beats his breast, says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And at, and at the same time, that, that tax collector is someone who has devoured the poor and oppressed the poor. And so he is guilty, and so that's why he is begging for God's forgiveness. And then we think of Zacchaeus, who is renewed, um, and, and then actually gives, what, half of his possessions to the poor and repays fourfold whatever he had taken. So I really like you know, seeing how these Proverbs connect to stories from the New Testament. Hmm. Again, that's that matter of, of reading these rather sometimes enigmatic sayings and yet being pointed all over the Scriptures. We've seen that throughout the book. It's, it's true here in chapter 30 as well. Verses 15 and 16 seem to go together. You get another. You get one of these lists. So first, verse 15, the leech has two daughters, give and give. And then Agur starts talking about things that aren't satisfied, things that won't say enough. He identi- Well, before we identify those things, what's the image of the leech and the two daughters? I think my understanding is that a leech has a sucker at each end of its body. And so it's it's basically, the give is a little confusing in the ESV because it doesn't have an exclamation point indicating an imperative behind it. But it's, the idea here is give, give, right? Gimme, gimme. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think that that's the idea is, is that the multi, you know, two mouths saying gimme, gimme, something that just wants more and more and more and more and is never satisfied. So the, the four things then that Agra identifies for us are Sha'ol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and a fire that never says enough. Let's let's work through each of those four. Sheol. What well, what is Sheol? This is probably always worth in our English translations. What is what is Sheol? It's a weird word. Sure. Context needs to be um, considered when you're reading Sheol in the Old Testament. Because it can just simply mean to go down to Sheol can just simply mean to die. And then, you know, Sheol can also be, um, you know, to be buried in the ground. And then also, it can mean hell. Mm. So, you know, contexts um, are, are, are crucial. I, here we don't really have any context, but I think it's simple enough to say, all we really need to say is that everybody who is born into this world dies. And so death is the last enemy to be destroyed, St. Paul says. Death is, is constantly devouring victims. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you want to think about that as temporal or eternal death doesn't make much difference. It's just, you know, constant. Yeah. So that's the first thing. You know, death death is, is never satisfied. Uh, the ground keeps opening up and swallowing the dead. The next one is the barren womb. <laughs> we have all sorts of examples from the Old Testament especially, but I'd say some in the New Testament of, of women who... Um, pine for for children but never can have them um so sarah of course would be pretty sarah hannah um and then elizabeth um so and 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 uh as as elizabeth elizabeth illustrates you know there's a reproach um an unfair one really uh, a reproach that occurs for women um who are unable to have children and um and 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 she says the lord has taken away my reproach um by blessing me with with a baby so one thing we do need to remember is that there are many believing women who never receive children from the Lord, but 
they should never conclude that this is God being displeased with them. Because as Jesus says in Luke 11, everyone who hears the word of God and believes it and, and keeps it will be blessed. So that's the highest blessing. Nonetheless, the barren womb is something that creates tremendous heartache for many, many people. And the barren womb, because it cannot produce those babies, is constantly desirous of babies. The land never satisfied with water. That's the next thing. What, what's the image there? Well, we, we live in central Texas. There's lots of drought. What, right. What, is, that, is that the image? Absolutely. And I think especially if you have sandy soil, right? Um, I mean, it rains, and then, you know, a few hours later, it's, it's like it's just completely dry. And so you think the Middle Eastern context here would be like that. Sure. Um, it's already drought you know, dry all the time. And then when it does rain, there's no way it can rain enough to really, you know, make the soil moist. Mm. And similarly, the idea of a fire that never says, the fire just consumes and consumes and consumes the last image. Well, we've had these terrible wildfires out in the West. Right. And, and, and you know, the Bastrop County had the terrible wildfires back in 2011 and um, near where, where we live. Um, and it's just astonishing to see how powerful these flames are. And as long as there's more stuff to consume, it's going to consume it. Hmm. So well, and I, with these images, I mean, they're, they're true enough. So these, these are things that are never satisfied in life. What do you do with this? I mean, it's, it's a true observation. What's, what's the wisdom behind this? With the previous section, okay, I'm not going to curse my father. I'm going to bless my mother. I'm going to watch out for self-righteousness. I, I see what I do with those words. What do, what do you do with verses 15 and 16? You apply it to your old Adam because he's insatiable. He's never had enough food or drink or money or sex and so on. Um, and so there's nothing that you can do to the old Adam to reform him. He's just got to be killed. And I think that what Augur is doing here is just by way of illustration of things that are insatiable in life, we need to think about our old sinful flesh that way and not think that we can just ever give him enough of these, you know, substances that will actually make him happy. He's never going to be happy. We can only be delighted in the Lord. Hmm. Verse 17. Here's, here's some more great imagery for you, Pastor Roth. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. I, I had it was Pastor Pastor Sean Kilgo. He, he shared with me that he always threatens his confirmation class to give them this as their confirmation verse. Yeah, well, I, that's, I, I told my wife this morning, this is the Roth family model. So we're going <laughs> to we're going to put it up in our schoolroom and uh, Remind them of the consequences. <laughs> this is what should be crocheted and put on people's people's walls. So, well, I mean, we've talked about fathers and mothers just previously, verse eleven, and this is very stark imagery. We don't. I don't think we. I don't think we take the fourth commandment as seriously as we should. And and a, and a verse like this helps us remember just how serious God was when He gave it. Well, I think another way of getting at the same thing is looking at some of the vice lists in the New Testament especially in Romans 1, mm -hmm. and recognizing that, you know, right next to murderers and adulterers, Paul identifies people who are disobedient to parents. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, this is the height of wisdom. And, um, you know, this is not, of course, gospel. This is just harsh law. But, you know, God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. 
um, you know, at our old Adam needs threats and, and discipline in order to be kept in check. Um, and, and I don't think our society does a particularly good job of, you know, um, threatening those who disobey parents and disobey other authorities. Um, you know, we, we live in a fairly lax society. And it is not surprising to see a lot of the chaos around us because without these structures in place and without the threats of punishment, um, the old Adam is going to run wild. Hmm. Right. I mean, the first use of the law as a curb to our evil behavior, the book of Proverbs emphasizes that in several places. Here again, the the threat of, in a very vivid, the ravens (laughs) of the valley eaten by vultures. That's watch out for your eye. Watch out for your eye. Oh, man. Verses 18 and 19, you get another list. Three things are too wonderful for me, for I do not understand. Very earthy images, but a bit more majestic. The four things that he points out, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. There seems to be a bit of a progression there in those. Sure. Well, I mean, you think about the progression of the creation. Um, It goes from, you know, the natural world to the animals, and then ultimately to man made in the image of God. And so I think we can see a similar movement here. Um, you know, these are, uh, the, uh, first thing is that the first three things move in, in extraordinary ways without legs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we all as, as human beings, at least prior to, you know, vehicles and so on, uh, had to use our feet to get around. But, uh, yeah, so, so the, those are amazing, um, means of, uh, of getting around, um, and, you know, there are so many wondrous aspects of creation. Quote, unquote, science can't explain a lot of things, especially, I would say, our consciousness. But we can leave that aside for today. Um, but the, uh, the, the love between a man and a woman is a truly wondrous, mysterious thing. And that's, uh, that's what Augur really wants to get us to focus on. Um, and, and so it's, it's really, I think, the, the, the way of a man with a virgin should be understood in the sense of courtship, you know, um, um, the man woos the girl, this leads to betrothal and marriage, and then ultimately to the physical expression of their love at the consummation of the marriage, which then, if it's the Lord's will, really leads to the miracle of life. I mean, procreation is such a profound mystery. And I think also one thing we always have to keep in mind is that the stakes are really high when it comes to marriage and sexual purity, because when God chooses to use an image of his son's love for the church, it is in the context of marriage, St. Paul says, the mystical union between Christ and his bride, the church, whom he has washed and cleansed. So in this list, again, what what do you do with this? The wisdom here is to to value the gift of marriage. It's It's looking at the sixth commandment from the positive angle. Correct. Yeah, and it's also... You know, pointing forward, going to be in in stark contrast to adultery, and and I think that's also interesting to point backwards. Um, you know, he's he's he moves between these these rather you know almost vulgar, crass, you know, evil, wicked scenes to the heights of of beauty and wonder. So he's he's almost taking us up and down, back and forth mm. in law and gospel. Mm. There is that immediate contrast in verse 20. He says, this is the way of an adulteress. 
she eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. So we just looked at the Sixth Commandment from the positive angle. Now Agra directs our attention to the negative side of it, to adultery. Yeah, I guess we first should say that this is not simply uh, misogynistic and, you know, spiteful of women. Uh, I mean, any of the, you know, sexual sins can be committed by by uh, either man or woman. Now, the, the word that connects verse 19 to really, yeah, 19 to 20 is way. Mm. So in 19, you've got the way of a man with a virgin. So this is the ideal um, uh, and, and, you know, a husband with his bride, and that's described as wonderful. Now, in this next verse, we have the way of an adulteress, illicit sexuality, misuse of God's good gift of sexuality, uh, in, and is in stark contrast to the previous verse. Mm. You want to keep moving? we got about 10 minutes. Sure. All sure. right. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, a fool when he is filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. We're back more on the, if we're talking about up and down, it seems like we've gone down again, things that shouldn't be. Uh, what What's happening in this list of four? Well, I guess the first thing we need to contemplate is what does it mean that the earth is trembling? Um and that, that the earth can't bear it. I, I guess that's the point is that it's just, these are, these are things that shake the foundations of, of home and society when these sort of things happen. Um, and so then clearly there are things that, that shouldn't happen. Um, okay. So what happens with this slave when he becomes king? I think that this is, uh, clearly a, a person who's unprepared to, to hold an office. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's not lived, uh, he's not moved through sort of a, an educational program, um, training in piety, and so on. But he's 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 been a slave, and that really isn't a moral judgment against him, right? Inherently, it is just simply that in order to serve in a high office such as king, you need to be prepared for it. And if you are not prepared for the great responsibilities involved, you might end up becoming a tyrant and simply using the office um, for your own service rather than service of others. And you also might very well be, be resentful of those who have had authority over you previously and then become rather haughty uh, and exalt yourself. Hmm. It's not all that different from what St. Paul says about the requirements for one who desires to be a, a pastor in terms of not being a recent convert, all of those, you know, I mean, that you wouldn't become arrogant in that. Right. Right. What about the, the fool when he is filled with food? Yeah, it's, this one's a little more obscure to me, but I think the the, the idea is that um, the fool is probably somebody who has to continuously toil for, um, you know, his daily bread. But if if he has everything handed to him in his lap, um, he also will become lazy and arrogant. The last two in this list are both women. An unloved woman when she gets a husband and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Yeah, and I, I think that the unloved woman when she gets a husband is, um, a, is is a little difficult for me to figure out. Now, Dr. Steinman, who wrote the Concordia Commentary on this, translates it under a woman who is hated when she is wed. And so he takes it as a woman who then is married but then is mistreated by her husband. Um, 
And then likewise, the maidservant, when she displaces her mistress, um, that is when the, the, uh, the man of the house has, has placed the maidservant into the position of honor in the household. I think the, in both cases, the, the, un, the unloved woman and the maidservant are the ones who are afflicted here. Um, they're in impossible situations. And so, you know, while, while I think the, the slaver angle or the polygamy angle is something that doesn't, that we can't really relate to today, and thanks be to God they're not parts of our society, I think the truths related to these things about the conflict that can occur in households can still apply to abusive marriages, perhaps some divorces, and then also sometimes with, with blended families. But I'd say that these two verses, um, you know, they, they're not expressing some sort of, you know, Ten Commandments type definite thou shalt, thou shalt not. I think they're intended to give us, you know, get us thinking again about the sort of things that, you know, the conflicts that can occur mm. and the way we should structure households. Mm. Well, and I think, you know, to go back to what you said at the beginning of this section, that what makes the earth tremble, what causes it not to bear up, when we when we break down the very structures that God has given in, I mean, think of the three estates, the family, the church, and the state. When we break down those structures, bad things happen, and, and we shouldn't be surprised. So, if you know, again, to think about well, what what's the point? What are we to do here? Value those things that God has given. Value that structure that He has ordered the world. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this really has to do with, um, you, you know, especially verse twenty three with the family, and, mm-hmm. and the Lord has spelled out very clearly His His will for the family, and so. Um, you know, as long as we're walking in that Christ-like sort of approach of him laying down his life for the wife and then the church submitting to him, then things are going to, to go better. Verses 24 through 28, Agur speaks of small things that are exceedingly wise, and he brings up ants, rock badgers, locusts, and lizards. We've got about four minutes here, Pastor Roth, just as a heads up. Maybe you could pick out one image if you want to talk about, but what's the what's the general point of this section? You know, Pastor Apple, this is one I just didn't really write any notes for, <laughs> and I'm I'm scratching my head a little bit. Uh, this sounds, and, and, this is well, this I mean, is the, the, this is a bit too cliche, perhaps, but don't don't judge a book by its cover, or I don't know, that that's maybe a little bit. You know, small things that are exceedingly wise. Sure. You 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 look at that, and yet there is still you know. Who would have thought that there's something I can learn from an ant? Yet there is. Yeah. Uh, same with you know rock badgers, locusts, lizards, all very natural elements. Again, uh, things things to look at that wisdom that the Lord has put within His creation, and sure. e- even in places where I maybe wouldn't look. That's kind of off the yeah. cuff, but no. And and so just for example, verse twenty five. You know, in contrast, we humans are strong, and um, and so how much more should we you know be providing for in our future, and so on. So I think industriousness might be one of the major emphases here. Sure, and, th- th- and that fits well, the, the idea of hard work. We were talking about earlier the idea of the, the slave who becomes a king or the fool who is filled with food. Hard work is often missing in those situations, and this would be a natural thing to follow here. Uh, with about two minutes, Pastor Roth, anything in the rest of the text that you want to hit, you're welcome to, or maybe just, I mean, we've talked about a lot of stuff. There's, sure. And we could spend tons of time on each section, meditating, chewing on these various aspects. 
How does this yeah. text as a whole work? Point us to Jesus. Give us a good summary here. Yeah, I mean, I really um, would like to look at the last two verses because I think they really bring us back to, um, you know, the, the central elements of the Proverbs. So if you've been foolish exalting yourself or if you've been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. You know, think about the anger and the rage that was stirred up against our Lord Jesus Christ and the, by the desire of, of, of the people to exalt themselves over him. And think about how often our Lord is, is advising us to turn away from strife, from anger, not exalt ourselves before others, to think better of other people, and to serve one another. So um, I, I think the, you know, the, the end of this chapter really does a good job of vividly illustrating the things that create the most trouble in our lives, the, uh, the anger that's uncontrolled in the same way that punching someone in the nose or <laughs> would produce blood or you know, pressing milk produces courage. So it's a very earthy, vivid way of illustrating um, the, the, uh, the, the fruits of the, the uh, works of the flesh that St. Paul talks about, for example, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, um, very vivid, but then also points us to uh, our Lord Jesus Christ who endured all of these things, the anger of mankind, suffered and died uh, for us, humbled himself so that he could then be exalted and lead us into heaven. Pastor Carl Roth is the pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, helping us this morning with Proverbs chapter 30, verses 1 through 33. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Pastor Apple. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.